You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your copy of God's Word, a Bible, or a Bible app, you can go ahead and grab that and go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one this morning. There are hardback Bibles on those tables in the back of the worship center. You can take one now. You can take one on your way out of worship today. That is our gift to you with no strings attached. You can take that Bible and never come back to this church, and I still will be your friend. It's okay. We would just love to give you a Bible. So make sure you grab one of those on your way out today. And if you are willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for His people. So listen carefully to these words recorded for us in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, today we come to the end of our study in the book of Ephesians, the final passage in the body of this letter that we've been working our way through for a number of months now. And this passage, as you've already seen, is teeming with the language of spiritual warfare. Warfare. So that will be our main theme for the day. But before we get into that, I want to carve out a few minutes here at the beginning for some Q&A, a follow-up, if you will, to the message from last week. Because as I talked last week about assembling the family from Ephesians 5 and 6, many of you came to me with good questions. So good, in fact, that I thought I might share a few of those questions publicly this morning because I think we can all benefit from them. So here are three of the questions that came in, and I just want to address them very quickly by way of introduction. Uh, First, what if I'm not yet married? You know, the passage we studied last week was all about wives and husbands and children, right? But what if... What if I'm a teenager? What if I'm not yet married, hope to be one day, but that's years down the road? What's my takeaway? What's the practical application for me from that passage last week? Well, I would say, assuming that you do plan to marry one day, there's, there's at least two takeaways. The first is this. In this season of singleness, chase godliness, not women. 
Chase godliness, not men. Because here's the bottom line. The better your relationship with God, the better your relationship with your spouse will be when God leads that right person into your life. So in this season of singleness, chase godliness, not women. Chase godliness, not men. And just trust the Lord's perfect timing. That's one takeaway. Now the other takeaway is that even as you enter into a dating relationship with someone, you should have those biblical roles of strong helper for the woman and servant leader for the man. You should have those biblical roles already in mind. They're not yet going to apply in the same way they will when you marry, but that doesn't mean you're oblivious to those roles now. So, for example, ladies, the Bible calls you to submit to your own husband. That is a non-negotiable. But you have, ladies, complete control over who becomes your husband. You have complete control over the question, to whom will I submit? So as you begin dating a man, you should ask, is this the type of man who will love and lead our family the way Christ loves and leads the church? Is this the type of man I could follow? Is this the type of man I would gladly submit to? So there are takeaways for you, even if you are not yet married. Second question, what if a child doesn't have believing parents? We talk a lot about family discipleship here at Faith Church, right? And in the passage last week, Paul spoke especially to the fathers, calling fathers to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But what about if it's a family that the children are believers and the parents are not? What then? In those cases, the church must step up. The brothers and sisters in Christ here must step up and disciple those children playing the role that the parents ought to play, all the while praying for the parents, seeking every opportunity to share the gospel with the parents. The hope, of course, is that one day that mom and that dad, they will profess Jesus Christ and they will be equipped to fill those roles of strong helper, servant, leader in their own family. But in the meantime, the church has to step up. And the third, maybe the most complex question of all, what if the father is an unbeliever or a less committed believer? So Paul made a big deal in last week's passage about male headship. The husband being the spiritual leader, the servant leader of the family. Well, what if the husband is not a believer? If he's not following Jesus, he can't possibly lead his family in a Christ-like, Jesus-like way. Or what if he's simply a less committed believer? In those cases, I think the wife has no choice but to step into the role that the husband ideally would play. Ephesians 5 and 6 give us God's ideal, his will for the family. But there are many, many, many less than ideal situations out there, right? And so when the father is either an unbeliever or a less committed believer, I think the mother must step into that role. But hear this. The hope is that this is a pinch-hitting situation. She's going to step in in that critical moment, but the hope and the prayer and the evangelistic emphasis of the family and the friends and everybody else that knows them is that that father will one day profess Jesus Christ, 
or grow in Christ's likeness and step into that role that is God's ideal for the family. I asked this rhetorical question last week. How do we rebuild the ruins of society? How do we rebuild? By forming our own families. The family is the cornerstone of society. How do we win the spiritual war? By training our own platoons. Now I use that language intentionally because we are in the midst of a spiritual war. We come now to our passage for today, the end of Ephesians chapter 6, teeming with language of warfare. This is, in fact, Paul's most detailed treatment in all of his writings, his most detailed treatment of this subject of the spiritual war. So we're going to look at this passage under two headings, very straightforward today. You ready? The call to arms and the armory. The call to arms and the armory. So let's look at the passage under those two headings. First, the call to arms. Picking up in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul begins by saying, be strong, put on the whole armor of God. In other words, this is the call to arms. We are not in a time of peace. We are in a time of war. We're not in a time of peace. Don't you sense that when you look at our world? We are in a time of war. Therefore, we must act appropriately. We must be strong. We must put on the whole armor of God. Now look here in verse 11. Paul singles out the devil. The devil. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. From this verse and the subsequent verses, we learn three things about the devil. The first thing we learn is that he is real. He's real. Barna, leading research group, did a study back in 2009. And that study concluded that the majority of American Christians do not believe that the devil is real. They believe that the devil is just a symbol of evil. Not an actual being, but a symbol of evil. So the devil is to evil what Tony the Tiger is to Frosted Flakes. A mascot. Comedic one, maybe. But the Bible teaches us that the devil is real. He's real. If we assemble the various pieces of the biblical story, the big picture we get is that the devil, Satan, is a created, spiritual, supernatural being. In the beginning, he was good, because in the beginning, everything was good. Sometime before the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, the devil rebelled against God. And since that fateful day, he seeks to be the object of the world's worship. 
He seeks the attention and the affection that belong to God, our Creator. He is hell-bent on leading individuals and families and communities and nations away from the God who created us, the God who loves us and desires our flourishing. Now I say we, we get that picture as we assemble the various pieces of the Bible together. And we actually have to work pretty hard to assemble that. We've got to go to the Old Testament and the New, pull some teaching from Genesis and Job and some stuff from Paul and John. Because if you'll notice in this passage here in verse 11, Paul doesn't give us any of the backstory, does he? He doesn't tell us a thing about where the devil came from, but he treats him as real. So many of our questions, if we stick to just this one verse, many of our questions remain unanswered. I mean, I have questions about the devil, don't you? I want to know a little more about that rebellion. How did things go down? Why is it that the Bible doesn't spend more time answering questions like that? Here's why I think. Helmut Thielicke was a German preacher and teacher and a strong critic of Nazi Germany. He lived from 1908 to 1986. Tilika has an essay called The Reality of the Demonic. The Reality of the Demonic. And in this essay, he explains why in the Bible not much time is wasted on questions about the backstory. Here's what Tilika says. The Bible faces this brutal and physical fact that the enemy has broken into the land. I stand in utmost peril This is no place for me to philosophize. Here I must fall to and fight. This is an emergency that leaves no time for reflection. When a bomb threatens to strike in my vicinity, the idea does not occur to me to stop and consider who manufactured it or to regard it as real only if I have been able to identify its weight and explosive effect and method of fabrication. Don't you see? It's wartime. The bomb is here. Who cares who manufactured it? It's time to fight. The first thing Paul teaches us is that the devil is real. He is a real enemy, a real adversary. But there are two other things that he teaches us in these few verses. The second thing he teaches us is that the devil is an evil intelligence. He's an evil intelligence. He has schemes, plans. He plots. The devil is a thinking, conspiring being. At the very beginning of the biblical story, he is pictured as the seductive serpent. At the very end of the biblical story, he is pictured as the lie-breathing dragon. Now, these are not wanted posters. They're not telling us what the devil looks like. They're telling us how he acts. They're revealing something of his tactics, his devices. He will try to seduce you. He will show us the bait and hide the hook. He is an evil intelligence. There's one more. He's real. He's an evil intelligence. And third... He has an invisible army. An invisible army. Verse 12. It seems from verse 12 that the devil has some form of hierarchy. A chain of command, if you will. Paul mentions 
the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil. And then he says these spiritual forces exist in the heavenly places, meaning in the spiritual dimension, the unseen world. So this very real enemy, who is an evil intelligence, has an invisible army. We then, as believers, must be ready for well-planned attacks that will come from invisible armies. We must be ready, which means we must visit God's armory. So that's where we'll go next. Look at the second half of the passage. Paul says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So we've heard the call to arms. Now we're in the armory, and here we discover that God supplies for us six weapons. We need each and every one of them. Let's look at them one at a time. Our first weapon is the belt of truth. Truth is the weapon. And truth here means both a deep conviction and a wide application of what God says is true. A deep conviction and a wide application of what God says is true. What God says is true about the family. What God says is true about sexuality. What God says is true about your identity. Your identity in Christ. Remember that Ephesians is primarily a letter about identity formation. Identity formation The subject of personal identity is everywhere in our culture. And there is so much identity angst. And there are so many people who have been convinced that I am who I feel myself to be on the inside. And if I will just act in accordance with these feelings, this core of feelings and intuition, then I will find that long-lost happiness that I've been searching for. See, here's the problem. The devil is an evil intelligence And one of the things he can do is plant deceptive feelings. Your feelings can be false. Your feelings can mislead you. Your feelings can be part of the devil's deception. I've said this time and time again in this series, so I hope by now it has sunk in. There is only one place where we can ask this question, Who am I? And receive the true answer. And that is in the presence of the God who made us. It's the only place where you can ask that question, Who am I? And receive the true answer. In the presence of the God who made you, who loves you, who cherishes you. Hang on to that truth. That truth is the first weapon in God's armory. The second weapon is righteousness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. This word righteousness is best understood, I think, as right relatedness. Right relatedness. It often in the Bible speaks of our right relatedness to God the Father because of the sinless life and sacrificial death of Jesus, God the Son. 
See, one of the other tactics that the devil has, he not only plants deceptive feelings and deceptive ideas, but he also hurls accusations. Revelation calls him the accuser of the brothers. He hurls accusations, and this is how it works. He reminds us of our past. He reminds us of our failures, our mistakes. And he reminds us of the failures of others. The first leads to a doubt that paralyzes us. We begin to have thoughts like, how could God ever use me? With my past, things I've done, things I've done to my wife, my children, my coworkers. How could God ever use me? How could God even love me? It causes a doubt that paralyzes us. And then, when the devil hurls those accusations... It causes us to remember the failures of others. That leads to a bitterness. A bitterness that turns us against each other. After what that person did, I could never go back to that church. I'm never going back to any church. You see how it works? This is why we need righteousness. This weapon works by remembering that we do in fact have a right relationship with God the Father. Because of Jesus the Son. Because of everything that Jesus has done, you and I, believer, we are forgiven. We are not defined by our past. We're not defined by our failures and our mistakes. We preach the gospel to ourselves and we apply the gospel to every conflict and every hurt we experience. God has forgiven the inexcusable in me, so I must forgive the inexcusable in others. Righteousness, that's the second weapon. The third one is readiness. Verse 15. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now here Paul probably means a readiness to share the gospel. Which is the message that brings peace. Peace between us and God. Peace with ourselves. Inner peace. The answer to that identity angst that we feel these days. And peace with others. It's really interesting, ironic, that here in this context of warfare, we're told that one of our weapons is the gospel of peace. So we can't fight all the hate and the aggression and the anger in this world. Can't fight that with more hate. It won't work. It's going to be important for us to remember that in a couple of weeks when I talk to us about transgender ideologies can't fight hate with hate. It doesn't mean we back off the truth. The spiritual warfare is more complicated, you see. It's not the type of physical warfare that we're conditioned to think about. One biblical scholar named Clinton Arnold, he's written a really good commentary on Ephesians. He sums up Paul's point really well. Here's what he says. It's important to remember that spiritual warfare has nothing to do with literal, physical warfare against human enemies. It represents a struggle against the ultimate enemies, the spiritual forces that stand behind and incite acts of literal violence and aggression and strife and hatred and actual flesh and blood warfare. Spiritual warfare, he says, is the solution to human warfare. 
So here's what this means. If you want to do something about all the hate and conflict in this world, then stand ready to share the gospel of peace. That's how we change things. That's the third weapon. Truth, righteousness, readiness. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. The shield that is faith, trust, confidence in God. And with this shield, you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So what are these flaming darts that the devil is going to be firing at us? Ideas. Ideas. Ideas that will cause doubt. The devil wants us to doubt God's presence, his power, his promises. This has been his ploy since the very beginning. He came to the woman in the garden with a question. Did God actually say? Did God actually say that? Maybe maybe you misheard. We hear similar voices all around us today, don't we? Did God actually say that about marriage, family, sexuality, gender? Maybe you misunderstood. Maybe there's a better interpretation. Maybe humanity has evolved. Maybe this is the key that unlocks the door to the good life that you've been missing. The arrows that will come your way and mine are ideas that will cause us to doubt God's goodness. This is why we need the shield of faith. The shield that is faith. Trust in God no matter what. The shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. This is our fifth weapon. Salvation. See, one of the ways the devil works is he will try to stir up within us a fear. A fear of suffering and a fear of death. He will cause us to to think things like, if I follow Jesus, I will have to make sacrifices. I might have to suffer. I might lose relationships. I might lose that opportunity for promotion in this company. I might have to sacrifice my financial security and my success. And for brothers and sisters who live in certain parts of the world, I might lose my physical life if I follow Jesus. But the helmet of salvation reminds us that we belong to Jesus and nothing will ever change that. You remember the very first question and answer we learned in the catechism that we've been working on Sunday mornings? The New City Catechism for Kids, question number one. Anybody learn? Anybody remember it? What is our only hope in life and death? What is our only hope in life and death? That we belong to God. We belong to God. We are not our own, but we belong to Him. Believer, you have been resurrected right now. Figuratively, you are a new creation. You belong to Jesus. And one day, you will be resurrected physically. You belong to him now, you will belong to him forever, and nothing will alter that. Nothing will alter that. So stand firm. Sixth and finally, again in verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Scripture. That's the sixth weapon. The Spirit 
inspired scriptures are a proven weapon when Satan's temptations come our way. I'll show you in a moment why I say proven. But first, I want you to look at the very end of the passage here where Paul now shifts. And instead of giving us weapons, he defines one continuous foundational activity. And that activity is prayer. Let me show you how it fits together. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So he's just given us these six weapons. We've been in God's armory. We've got six weapons, and now he gives us one, not an additional weapon, because that's not how he refers to prayer here. Prayer is not an additional weapon. Rather, it's one foundational and continuous activity that allows us to arm ourselves with the other weapons. So just as a warrior needs someone to help him put on his armor, you and I need help as we wield these six weapons, and prayer is the thing that helps us. Prayer is the thing that helps us. Picture it like this. Prayer is the wartime walkie-talkie. Prayer is the wartime walkie-talkie. So by praying at all times, we remain mindful of the fact that we are in a time of war. Not a time of peace. A time of war. And therefore, we remember that we must arm ourselves. We need readiness and righteousness and truth and all of these things that Paul has just listed. These final two instruments that Paul mentions, Scripture and prayer, the sword of the Spirit and the wartime walkie-talkie, these are the very two instruments that Jesus himself used in his battle with the devil. Do you remember the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? His battle with the devil and how he defeated him? In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, we get the beginning of the story. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, the devil, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The two instruments that Jesus wields are prayer. He's been fasting and he's been praying for 40 days. And scripture, the sword of the spirit. This is how he slays the dragon. The devil comes with his temptations three times. I only gave you the first. Three times the devil will come with temptations. And each time Jesus refutes it with scripture. He wields the sword of the spirit. See, this is why it's so important that we do what we're doing right now. Studying God's word together. This is why it's so important for you and your family to be in connection groups. Why it's so important for you to study the scriptures in the context of your own home. Because this is how we refute the devil and the temptations that will come our way. Jesus is showing us in this passage how to fight against those temptations. But he's showing us one more thing. 
And this is where I want to leave you in this series. Have you ever wondered, as you've read this story, why was Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days? Why 40 days? See, we, we should ask this type of question when we seek to interpret the biblical text. Why not 35 days? Why not 50? There's a deliberate contrast with Israel here. In the Old Testament, God's people disobeyed him. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. We read about their wanderings in the book of Deuteronomy. The same book that Jesus quotes three times as he fights against the devil in this passage. See, Jesus is connecting the dots for us. Here's what he's doing. He's showing us that as Israel was unfaithful, as you and I are unfaithful, he remains faithful. He remains faithful. Faithful to the point of death. Death on a cross in our place for our sins. Yes, in this passage, Jesus is teaching us how to fight temptation, but he's teaching us something far greater. He's teaching us that when we fail, he remains faithful. See, brothers and sisters, your identity, your relationship with God, it is not established on your own obedience. It's not. That's not the foundation. The foundation is the obedience of Jesus. Obedience to the point of death, death on a cross. It's what he did for you. The devil likes to remind us of our past. He likes to remind us of our failures and our mistakes. When he does that to you, remember your identity in Jesus Christ. And you remind the devil of his future. Like Martin Luther used to say, to hell with you, devil, because I'm with Jesus. You tell him that. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word as always. It's convicting, it's encouraging, it's challenging, and it's equipping. I pray that your word will penetrate hearts this morning making us into the people and the families you desire for us to be, keeping us strong as we will no doubt face well-planned attacks by invisible armies. So help us to be ready now, always, for the sake of your Son.